I'm not going to go through all those deception themes that we looked at, but um, last week we looked at the deception of interpreting our misfortunes as others' deliberate actions. And we took C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters and kind of analyzed it a little bit. And I exposed the statement from the 30th letter where the senior devil says to the junior devil, what men come to expect, soon they will believe that they have a right to it. Disappointment, with a little bit of encourage from our part, can be turned into an injury. So these were the two things that we looked at. Then a third point that I introduced, which said was, what was once my pleasure becomes an abuse. And you may remember I gave the example of uh, when you were 14 years old, how you used to beg your father or mother to let you hold the steering wheel of the car. But now that you are 18 or 19 and have a driving license and have been driving for a little while, you know, if the father or mother says, can you go and pick up your sister from the railway station, you, you suddenly winch and whine and carry on. So at the age of 14 or 15, to hold that steering wheel and drive a little bit, even if just moving you know, two or three feet backwards and forwards was an absolute pleasure and a delight. So what was once my delight has now become a burden, a pain. I think sometimes we can apply that to relationships too. How we have cherished our relationships in many ways or an opportunity and then how it turns sour and becomes a burden. Why, God, why did you give this woman to be my wife? Or, God, why did you give me these children? You know, sort of attitude. So what was once my delight is now seen as an abuse. So those were the three things that we looked at last week. The next two, three weeks, uh, this week and the next two weeks, I want to look at God's prescription for human deception. So I don't want to dwell any further on uh, the deception. Yes, the deception theme, but I believe that God has an answer to this situation. Earlier in this series, I had suggested that we cannot cast out the demons, but we must live in such a way that they will cast us out. In other words, we must become odious to the devil, to the demons, to the evil one. Many times we try to cast out the demons, but a better way is to live our life in accordance with God's will and purposes, according to God's plan for our life, to the point that the devil will have to leave us. As we read in the Gospels about the temptation of Jesus and the devil left him for a while until an opportune time came or until such time came when the person would let the devil in. That's what it means. So the idea is not to give an opportunity. So this is how we get expelled. So we must be expelled. And I gave the example that the Egyptians did not let the Israelites go. They actually expelled them. They said, please leave, get out of here, take whatever you want. The fact that Moses had time to dig up Joseph's tomb and take his probably mummy 
uh, it would have been embalmed mummy. All those shows that they were allowed to take whatever they wanted, get out of here. You know, please go. You know, we don't want you here, sort of thing. That is the expulsion, that you become unbearable to the enemy, to the evil one. This is the best way of being liberated from the control of the evil one. When we cast out the demons, they will only leave us for a short time. When the demons cast us out, we are safe until we decide to return to its influence again. Let us take the story of Joseph, and I'm going to dwell on the story of Joseph for this Sunday and next Sunday. I used to dislike Joseph, seriously, because he was too good for me. <laughs> the almost perfect man. The problem is not with Joseph, it is with me. To be honest, I don't like heroes, and I don't have any heroes. I like the Apostle Peter and King David. I like the Samaritan woman and Martha, the sister of Lazarus. Now, I did not say I don't like Mary or I don't like Apostle Paul, but what I'm saying is these are the people I like in the Bible. I am captivated by the courage of the widow of Zarephath, who challenged the prophet Elijah and said, O man of God, did you come to my house to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Why did you come in the first place? I would have died of starvation, but you provided for us. And now my son is dead. What are you going to do? I love that challenge. And this woman says, why did you bother in the first place? Why did you make contact with me to remind me that I'm a bad person and destroy my son? Thank you very much for coming, but I don't need you. Love it. I like the Syrophoenician woman who humbly stood up to Jesus saying, even dogs have a place under their master's table, you know, by the way, just reminding you. Now, she wasn't going to curl up and die and, and take shame and say, oh, this big guy, and he's sort of put me to shame. I am a victim, and I'm going to live, you know, for the rest of my life a victim. He says, no, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to stand up for my rights. And just, by the way, I know you are a prophet and a big teacher and a holy man or whatever you are, Rabbi, with due respect. But, you know, dogs also eat from under their master's table. What are you going to do about that? Just reminding you about your responsibility to dogs. I like it. I like them, not because I am like them, but because they are within my reach. I feel these are the people I like to be like. I am not like them, no. I'm, I haven't reached that stage yet, but I like to be like them. They are my role models. I know that with God's help, I can aim to be like them. As for Joseph, and other near-perfect spiritual giants, they intimidate me and discourage me. I'm not even a dwarf next to them. Some time ago, during a conversation with a friend about some amazingly successful Christian leaders uh, who have major holes in their lives, this friend of mine suggested that I may be jealous of these people, and that is why I disassociate from them. My response was, how can you be jealous of someone who is light years ahead of you? No, I'm not jealous of Usain Bolt, the fastest man on earth, or Roger Federer. I'm not jealous of Neil Armstrong. I'm not jealous of any of these guys. These are people who have done amazing things. 
No, I'm not jealous. I can never be like them. That is how I feel about Joseph. I did not want to admire him, but I could not even be jealous of him. That was a problem. I couldn't even be jealous of him because he was so much ahead of me. So I did what I could. I avoided Joseph. I just avoided him. Didn't even study about him. Didn't want to read about him. Never preached about him. More recently, working on developing Transform for Life and the Alive training, I have fallen in love with Joseph. Today, I see him. I see him a man. I'm going to give four points about why I'm in love with Joseph. Today, I see him a man who did not chase after the dreams God gave him, but waited for God to act in his time. To me, this is an essential feature of Christian discipleship. Waiting for God's time is discipleship. I believe it is so sad and I feel so sad when I hear programs in churches that talk of accelerated discipleship. How can you have an accelerated discipleship that you become what God wants you to be in, as in, a, in a crash course or something like overnight? Can you speed up discipleship? I don't know. Discipleship is waiting for God to act in his time, in his manner, whether I like it or not. So why have I fallen in love with Joseph and what has transformed for life and alive training done for me? This is a challenge. Is I see in him a man who did not chase after the dreams God gave him. God gave him dreams. They were not his dreams. They were God's dreams. But he waited for God to act in his time. To me, this is an essential feature of Christian discipleship. This is what it means to rest in the assurance of God's character and his promise. What is God's character? He is good. And a good God will do what is good. So I must learn to rest in God's character. What is God's promise? It is about his faithfulness. It is not about amazing things happen. That may happen, but it is faithfulness. God is faithful. So two things, character and promise. God is good and God is faithful. And that makes all the difference. Secondly, today I see in him a man who refused to extract glory and honor by projecting a victim mentality, but by becoming an agent of healing. This is something that I learned about Joseph and I have fallen in love with him for that reason. He did not accept a victim mentality or victimhood. He didn't want to remain a victim of other people's evil intentions. Instead of focusing on his misfortunes, he saw himself as a means of the emancipation of others. He said, I am not a victim. I am a healer. I'm a deliverer. Even if his dreams remained unrealized, he still believed in dreams and the dreams of other people. For him, God was much bigger than one person's dreams. And I think this is something we need to understand. Then we will understand disappointments in a completely different way. God is much bigger than one person's dreams. And that is something we need to understand. So my dreams may not come true, but that doesn't mean that God does not fulfill 
the dreams that he has given to other people. I may have to wait a, a little longer. My neighbor may only have to wait a short period. Still, God is faithful and God will do what he has promised. We do not determine God's character based on just one person's disappointments. Third reason why I am in love with Joseph, because I see in him a man who adopted self-revelation instead of self-loathing, that is, despising himself. A man who adopted self-revelation instead of self-loathing as the way of being free of hatred and revenge. At the moment when he was most tempted to take revenge, he resorted to self-revelation. I am Joseph, your brother, he said to his brothers. The temptation was real. It was powerful. It was palpable. It was possible. But he said, I am Joseph, your brother. Fourth, I see in him a man who recognized true repentance in others and was prepared to respond in forgiveness. A man who recognized true repentance in others and was prepared to respond in forgiveness. In Genesis 44, we see him playing with the guilt and fears of his brothers. You know, it just goes on. It is an amazing, amazing story of psychology. I was searching the net. One of the psychology uh, groups have even written a psychoanalysis of Joseph's interactions with his brothers at that time. Very interesting. He knew that they were guilty of what they did to him, though they did not now recognize him. He also knew that they were afraid of his power and his capacity to harm them for no particular reason, because he never threatened them in that way. When Judah put himself forward as a ransom for his half-brother Benjamin, everything changed. Joseph reveals himself. I'm going to read to you a fairly lengthy passage of scripture from Genesis 44, 18 to 34. Genesis 44, starting at 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father? Or a brother. And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. 27. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. Verse 28. One left me 
And I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to show. Verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his father is bound up in the boy's life. It's beautiful. Verse 31. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to show. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. It's heart-wrenching what Judah says. It is a speech by Judah. It's, it's really, I mean, I, I read it and read it and read it and said, this is powerful stuff. I'm going to suggest that five things happen here. The five things are, first, Judah vividly reveals his father's heart. Judah absolutely vividly reveals his father's heart. Second, Judah offers to take the place of his brother Benjamin. He is prepared to sacrifice himself for the safety of his father and his brothers. Third, Joseph for the first time hears that his father thinks he is dead. See, until now, Joseph had no idea what his father knows about what happened to him. But now he discovers that my father thinks I am dead. Four, Joseph also hears for the first time that even after almost 20 years, his father is still grieving his disappearance. Fifth, Joseph decides to reveal himself. When Joseph saw the father's heart and his brother Judah's determination to give up his life, he could not control himself. We read in chapter 45, verses 1 to 3, He could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Apparently, Joseph probably has cried more than any other great men in the Bible, it seems. There's been that many references to Joseph weeping, not crying, weeping. We see him do it many times. Amazing. And sometimes we need to learn that greatness of character is not being stubborn or so-called strong or strength of character is not always not having vulnerability. He was a man who was not afraid 
to be vulnerable. And that's powerful. That is really powerful. This is indeed the story of the Gospels. We see there the father's love and the brother's sacrifice. This is what the gospel is all about. In the gospels, we see the father's love. See what manner of love for God so loved. And then we have our brother in Christ who gives himself up and says, I will take your place. So this is indeed the story of the gospels. We see there the father's love and the brother's sacrifice. This is what leads to repentance and restoration. And this should be the message that we give to people. Two things that leads people to repentance and restoration are the father's love and the brother's sacrifice. The father did not sacrifice the son, but the son offered himself up. And that's how we need to understand it. The father loved, the son offered himself to the Father, to the world. We must take a resolve that we will be motivated only by the Father's heart and the brother's preparedness to take our place. That is our motivation. Once that becomes our motivation, things change. Our attitudes change. Our perspectives change. The way we behave when we have the power to take revenge is the true indication of our forgiveness. How do I know I have forgiven someone? How I behave when I have the power and opportunity to take revenge. Joseph did not forgive his brothers because they confessed their crime or because they repented of their wrongdoing. Something we need to understand. This, I believe, is the case because he did not take revenge on Potiphar or his wife either. And they never confessed or repented. We don't know of anything about that. They never said, we are sorry. But Joseph never took revenge. He could have taken revenge on Potiphar and his wife because he had the reason, legitimacy, opportunity, and the power to do it. In Joseph, we see God revealing the character of the redeemed community. Above every other plot and theme that scholars and preachers have detected from the story of Joseph, this one theme of no revenge is foremost in the mind of the author of this story. If there is one title for Joseph, it should be no revenge. Revenge never. Joseph forgave his brothers long before he ever was reunited with them. No matter how much he was tempted subsequently, he acted on that earlier conviction, I will not take revenge. He did not take revenge on Potiphar. He did not take revenge on his brothers. No matter how much I am hurt, I will not take revenge. Somewhere along the way, during his time in Potiphar's dungeon, he learned to see things from God's perspective. And this is what happens when we become helpless and at the mercy of other people. Until he was thrown in jail, he was a man with dreams. But when he was put in jail, his dreams had no meaning. He was helpless, vulnerable, and at the mercy of others. 
In Potiphar's dungeon, I believe he learned that he was in need of forgiveness as much as those who have offended him. He is just as much a victimizer as he is a victim. Secondly, he learned that revenge may bring temporary relief, but it does not bring healing. And that's something we need to understand. Revenge may bring temporary relief, but it never gives us healing. Thirdly, I believe in Potiphar's dungeon, Joseph learned that revenge invalidates the meaning and purpose of personal suffering. It cancels. When I take revenge on somebody, then the whole purpose of my suffering is cancelled. The meaning is obliterated. I cannot see why I had to go through all this. Because the revenge compensates for all that. And it covers up, it mars. You know, it is like someone who's been scratching on a mirror. And I come looking at the mirror, I can't see anything anymore. And that's what revenge does. We can't see the purpose of personal suffering. Revenge invalidates or cancels or mars, discolors the meaning and purpose of personal suffering. We will not be able to learn from our painful disappointments in life if we resort to revenge. All we can do after that is live in hatred and the fear of being hated. Because remember, hurt people hurt others. Victims victimize. The fourth learning is rather powerful. If Joseph was stuck on the revenge theme, he would not have allowed God to execute his purposes for him and through him. He would not have been able to say to his brothers what he said in Genesis chapter 45 verses 4 to 7. Listen to me as I read to you. Come near me, please, he says. I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to prepare for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. I love the way Joseph phrases his words. You sold me as a slave. He does not compromise on that. That is what happened. Thank you very much. You sold me. You abused me. You cheated me. You mistreated me. You sold me as a slave. God sent me to save. This is powerful. You sold me as a slave. And the same act. I see it as God sent me here to save lives. That is what the purpose of it is. I could see it in two different ways. I can see it as the result of evil men doing evil things to good man or an innocent man. 
And then all I can think of is revenge. But I'm going to see it differently. You know how I see it? I see it as God sent me. You sold me, God sent me. I am a missionary, the one who is sent. I'm an evangelist, the one who is sent. Beautiful, powerful. God sent me to save lives. What happened to me eventually does not change the cruelty of your actions. Oh no, it hurt. You have no idea how much it hurt me. The betrayal. In fact, you just said it. Because you can still remember me crying for mercy, saying, please don't do this. You just reiterated it to me. What happened to me eventually does not change the cruelty of your actions. So it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me. You sold me, but God sent me. God fulfilled in my life what he showed me when I was a boy. But your actions made me pay a very high price for my trust and obedience. You cannot stop God from fulfilling his promises in my life, but you can make me pay a very high price for that. The cost of discipleship is high when there are evil men and women who work against the plan of God. Otherwise, discipleship is not that costly. Discipleship is so costly when we are surrounded by people who do not want God's way. Later in Genesis chapter 50, he repeats the same sentiment when his brothers began to panic after their father's death. He again says, You intended to harm me, Genesis 50, 20, but God intended it for good. Intentions. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Joseph refused to deceive himself. The brothers deceived themselves by thinking that if they can get rid of Joseph, their father will love them more. But that did not happen. The father moaned for his lost son until he was reunited with him. They deceived themselves thinking that if Joseph is out of the picture, they will be happier. Instead of all they got was a terrible guilt, guilty conscience. Every time something went wrong, they thought it was because of what they did to Joseph. But no matter what happened, Joseph believed that God was with him. And this is so powerfully narrated, the verse after Joseph was thrown into jail. We read, and God was with him. We know God is with us, not because of what happens to us, but because of the assurance of his promise. And God was with him. But no matter what happened, Joseph believed that God was with him. Next week, we want to consider how Joseph developed this perspective. I wonder if the names he gave to his children have some significance in this regard. He married the daughter of the priest of the sun god, wasn't it? Yeah. Ra. And she gave Joseph two sons, or they had two sons together. The first was Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Mm. 
Very interesting name. God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Did Joseph really forget all his father's house? You need to ask. Week 6, level 2 of Alive Training is about remembering. We forgive, we let go, and we remember. And we want to see how Joseph remembered what happened to him. Did he actually forget all his father's life? Did he forget all his hardship? How can he forget what Potiphar's wife did to him? How can he forget what his brothers did to him? In fact, he only just narrated saying, you intended to harm me, but God. He just said, you sold me. Oh, he didn't forget any of that. You sold me, but God sent me. So what did he forget? What does Manasseh really mean? God willing, we will have a look at it next week. What did he actually forget or wanted to forget? His second son's name was Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Woohoo! Misfortunes? God has made me fruitful in the land of my misfortunes. Very interesting. I love the way he looks at it. God has made me fruitful. He looks at sees the result of what happened rather than just focusing on his actions. 